Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mm, 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 mm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. Thank you very much for listening to Trilove, a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trilon Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Trilove Podcast. You can find the Trilon Cinema at Trilon Cinema. And you can go to Trilon.org to get tickets to all showings, uh, maybe virtual ones these days or recommendations. Um, find ways to support them online at Trilon.org. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. I am your host and co-podcaster. I'm trying to find better ways to say that. And you can find me at Nintendoofus. I'm Cody Narvison, and I just came in to take a leak. But you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. I'm Harry. I'm going to get Rick Masters, and I don't give a shit how. And you can follow my exploits on Twitter at Shtaki Harry. Oh, I forgot we're going to do this bit. Uh, looked away for a second. Did anybody do I'm getting too old for the shit? Going to assume I'm the only. Okay. Uh, I think you I, just you, did. Wait, 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 wait. wait. You, you looked yeah. away so you couldn't hear? Uh, I was I was researching my uh, my oh like, yeah, yeah. Hey, this is cool dude. This is, We're this admitted is, yeah, into this, this is, podcast. Cool dude. This is this is like when you when you're driving and looking for an yeah. address and you turn down the volume in your car for no reason at all. Yeah, it's like that. Go ahead. Yeah, well, it, it uh, clears the mind. Uh, yes, I'm getting too old for this shit, and I'm Aaron. You can find me on Twitter at RB Please. I'm going to uh, before introducing our guest. I'm going to retroactively add mine. Uh, I'm Jason, and my taste is in my ass. You can find me at Nintendoofus. Um, Today, we're very uh, happy to be rejoined by a very special guest, uh, Seth Zarati. What are you up to, Seth, and where can people find you? Uh, I am. Uh, I, I know that you guys do this bit, and I still never think about it. Even when it's established, I'm going to be on the podcast. So uh, you can find me living and dying on Twitter at SN Zarati. Very incredibly good. Uh, thank you for the improv. Today's film, of course, is, uh, as you might have intimated, to Live and Die in L.A., continuing the William Friedkin series that recently wrapped at the Trilon. Uh, and Aaron has a little bit of something to say about it, I hope. Yes. Uh, to Live and Die in L.A. is a 1985 movie, uh, as Jason mentioned, directed by William Friedkin. The film follows Secret Service agent Richard Chance, played by William Peterson, as he goes to great lengths to catch criminal counterfeiter Rick Masters, played by Willem Dafoe, uh, after Masters is responsible for the death of Chance's Secret Service partner during an investigation. Uh, agent Chance begins to work with a new Secret Service agent, John Vukovic, played by John Pankow, as they both go to more and more extreme measures in pursuit of justice. Uh, also notable here, uh, Darlene Flugel plays Ruth Lanier, uh, an informant that Chance extorts for information. And uh, our boy, John Turturro, plays Carl Cody, a criminal working for Masters to help smuggle uh, counterfeit bills. Um, also notable is a soundtrack by Wang Chung, uh, which is an 80s band that I don't know anything about, but they did the soundtrack that's very uh, kind of prominent in this film. That's what I got, Jason. Back to you. Uh, thank you. Uh, a pretty great Mr. summary, if I must say. Yeah, that was, that was, that was Weatherman Aaron. You're, you're, getting, uh, you're getting better at these. Um, thank you. So 
uh, off the top, I really dug this movie. Uh, we are sticking to our tradition of not review, excuse me, not rating or reviewing movies before showing up to the podcast so we can get fresh thoughts. Uh, I really dug this movie in a different way from the other Friedkin movies that we've seen as part of the series of which I think that comprises my total experience with Friedkin. Um, I found it really riveting. I found it really interesting in a lot of different ways from the uh, other Friedkin movies I've seen. They seem more understated. This seems more slick and I guess newfangled in a lot of ways, but I'm looking forward to finding out uh, what the rest of the team thinks about it and uh, and maybe how we can bounce those ideas off each other. Um, it is incredibly violent. Uh, I don't know if we're the best to discuss how, but it is also uh, riddled with homoerotic subtext and text. And I find that a really interesting lens through which to look at the movie. I've been trying to do a little bit of research on it. Uh, anyway, I'm going on too long. I really enjoyed this movie. And, uh, and Cody, what did you think? Sure. Uh, thanks Jason. Um, I guess kind of similar to you. I'm in no way convinced that to live and die in LA is necessarily on the same level. Uh, take that however you mean as the other Friedkin films that we've watched up to this point, but in some ways I may have had more fun with this one. Um, and I say it without a whole lot of substance, admittedly. Um, I'm just taking specific images from my experience of watching it last night. Um, like there's kind of painting, painting this picture. There's a scene very early on where two dudes are drinking shitty beer on a beach at sundown. We have some slick English new wave blasting through that scene. Um, and much of this movie, a lot of welcome kind of synthy pop. Um, we've got the Los Angeles skyline somehow always present in the background. And on top of all of that sort of ingraining this movie in a specific time and place, our protagonist exudes, uh, exudes rather such a specific, unlikable flavor that made me think um in act one i honestly don't care what happens to this character which in this case sort of alleviated some of the tension and stakes uh for me at least and created a different movie watching vessel that felt more to me like junk food than like the french connection or or the sorcerer did um and at that time that's something i was into um and also you know recognizing that it's not necessarily glowing praise uh for this movie um we've alluded to it there are a lot of cop and noiry sort of tropes in play here the i'm getting too old for this bit um character about to reach retirement disregard for uh commanding officers um there was also what i could only conclude was an attempt at like characters talking noir or like in a sort of noiry voice um like they were sort of tiptoeing in a monotone way through their lines. And it didn't always work uh, for me anyway. Um, I'm thinking mostly of our main cop duo, uh, Richard Chance and John Vukovic. Um, and I also felt this from from Johnny Turtz's character, Carl Cody, um, which is a silly, dumb name. Uh, and I, I look at Willem Dafoe's antagonist by comparison, who floats through this movie and has like something of an easier time, I thought, communicating more with those same types of restraints on volume and visible emotion and... I'm still trying to work out what William Friedkin was trying to capture specifically. Um, and what we should note is a movie that he also co-wrote, and that's different from the movies of his that we've discussed up to now. Um, maybe there's something there. I'm not really sure, but I will say it didn't really necessarily help me that we watched two ostensibly all-time great films leading up to this one. Um, and it's not necessarily fair, right, to use those movies as a yardstick for uh, measuring this movie because the end product of To Live and Die in L.A., we'll probably talk about it. It feels like it's doing maybe something different, even if that wasn't the intent in the first place. Um, like I wasn't looking for a compelling arc from our main cop duo, uh, or I, I was rather looking for it and I didn't find it. Um, and we had a great arc in Jimmy Doyle. Um, but you know, it's not fair to measure those characters against one another because they're different movies, even if they're from the the same dude. Um, in any case, now I'm talking too long. Um, whether or not there's actually something missing or if I'm just imagining it, I'm curious to hear what we all think about this movie as well. Me too. Hit us, Harry. 
Uh, that's wild. I feel a little bit bad that I'm going to steal Aaron's thunder, but I had a very different experience with this movie, I guess. I think it's basically the Starship Troopers of buddy cop movies, and uh, therefore William Friedkin is like the perfect vessel for it. And I think it does to 80s movies what The French Connection did to like 60s and 70s cop movies. And I thought it was like a really, really realized vision of that. Although I will say that I didn't like the first act also because I didn't really have a feel for what it was doing. And I didn't really understand what came in my mind to feel extremely intentional and realized from start to finish, right down to the soundtrack, which I think is really, really obnoxious and uh, takes you out of the film in a way that is actually intentional. Uh, Aaron and I debated that a little bit last night. We watched it together. Um, But as I thought about the movie more after finishing it, I realized how well all of that worked for me. Um, And I think that the performances particularly those of Richard Chance, William Peterson, and uh, Willem Dafoe as Rick Masters, um, really work for me in the same way. Um, this is a this is a movie that is like like a really um, committed satire, uh, but it's also interested in being a good movie, which I think maybe is what separates it from Starship Troopers in my mind a little bit, but that was a comparison that jumped out to me. Um, just because Richard Chance is a, a fucking psychopath, like even way more so than Doyle was. And uh, this movie is really interested in unpacking that. And crucially in portraying him is not even competent in his role, which is maybe the big satirical separation is that in all of these movies that are ostensibly set up to demonstrate how dangerous and uh, corrupt and evil the police are um, and their whole ideology is, usually they at least demonstrate that uh, – the, the police that go to great lengths are hyper-competent somehow. And in this movie, uh, Rick Masters, or I'm sorry, not Rick Masters, but Richard Chance's um, thrill-seeking personality actually makes him extremely incompetent at even what he's ostensibly trying to do, because it's not what he's really trying to do in the first place, which I thought was terribly interesting, like a really good way to do that. Um, and to make that happen, to make that satire happen in what is essentially William Friedkin's John Woo movie was like really, really exciting for me, especially as it sort of came to sing by the end of the movie. Um, so I agree to an extent with Cody that this movie is doing a lot of different things, but I think that its status as an 80s movie and a buddy cop movie really made it into something that was totally realized in my opinion and this may be a controversial statement but i would put it right alongside uh sorcerer and um the french connection maybe it's not as uh restrained or or masterful uh no pun intended a movie but i think it's like just as ambitious and just as um realized in my opinion yeah um this this movie, uh, I guess, first and foremost, is somebody born in the early '90s. Uh, this movie movie made me realize how much I hate the 1980s. Just got to be the worst decade in modern American history. Uh, looks like shit. Uh, music sucks. Uh, fashion sucks. Really, everything Ronald is just bad. Politics is bad. Yeah, it's terrible. I mean, the movie opens with a, a Ronald Reagan quote. Uh, it, it's like bad. Um, that being said, uh, this movie. Uh, 10 out of 10. It's a masterpiece. This is the best movie I've seen at the, the, the part of the trial on programming Easy. this year easily. Whoa. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe if we would like his motorbike, her Island, we did as part of like the, when the trial on was in hiatus and shut down. Uh, so I don't know if that counts, but that's like maybe up there with it. 
Um, I really like this movie. I'm kind of stuck in the middle. Like, I think I have to acknowledge what Harry said because I think we're kind of uh, agreeing here. Um, and also, I don't want to go off on a tangent and set Seth up for nothing. So I'll, I'll say that um, this movie is like maybe the most cynical movie <laughs> I've seen in recent memory. Yeah, it dude. is incredibly cynical and ironic and hateful um, in a way that I actually really love. Uh, I think right around when I started college, there was like this big movement of like trying to be like really empathetic and like sincere and like really taking a heartfelt look at the characters and films. And um, I, th I think there's a lot to be said for that. But I think the thing that I am discovering that Friedkin understands uh, through the French Connection and through Sorcerer and through, I think, ultimately and, and best uh, to live and die in, in L.A. is that sincerity and empathy are only worthwhile if the people and the organizations you are looking at deserve them. And every single person in this movie is a massive piece of shit. Uh, the organizations constantly support the main character of Richard Chance being a massive piece of shit. Um, the movie hates its main character. Uh, the main character is a, a buff, like, secret service agent who wears a leather jacket and denim pants and has a gun tucked into his waistband and still gets his ass kicked by John Turturro. Uh, like, who in this movie looks like he's about 130 pounds soaking wet. Yeah, he, he is an actor mainly known for playing the part of spindly guy in Coen Brothers movies. And I, I love John Turturro, but like, how do you get your ass kicked by John Turturro? Um, this movie is like incredibly hateful uh, and nihilistic, and I uh, absolutely love it while I'm there. Thank you, Aaron. I am really going to enjoy digging into the, your thoughts about that, too. Uh, so, Seth, as you may have already picked up, we're looking for some top-level thoughts that we can use to springboard the conversation. What do you think? Yeah, uh, I'm really glad ha that Harry brought up that uh, that Starship Troopers comment, because I know uh, I watched this uh, last night with uh, Jason, and I brought up like my sort of connection to RoboCop, another Verhoeven film where I was just Hell like, yeah. I was, yeah, I was like, this is a like shockingly violent movie. Uh, and then also kind of going into what Aaron said, I'm really glad you guys didn't steal my thunder. Cause I'm really on the same boat. It's, it straddled this line between, uh, you know, like satire and a sort of sincere buddy cop film where I know through the, the, I feel like a lot of people are talking about the the first act, the first third of the movie. I kept thinking to myself, like, is this is this for real? Is this how this movie is going to move? Because uh, I know that I had some some issues with some of the the scripting uh, and some of the dialogue exchanges. It felt very, <laughs> it, it, it felt super rushed. Like in the the first twenty minutes of the movie, it was just like, you know, scene you haven't seen. Uh, more talking, scene you haven't seen, new characters, da 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 da. But like by the end of the movie, I really enjoyed it. So, uh, you know, e excited to dig into this. Me too. It sounds like the thing that all of us keep coming back to is like that line between sincerity and satire. And it seems like either it's a balance or I guess I'm interested in Cody's view of this because I think we're all kind of on the same page, maybe except Cody. Uh, what, did it fall on one side of the, or, or the other of that to you, Cody, of like, is this a movie that's trying to sincerely be a buddy cop movie and is just incorporating all the elements uh, of it that, that sort of like maybe didn't work for you or is it like you don't, I guess, do you, do you see a balance there at all or is it totally like the stack, the, the uh, game is loaded in one way? 
Uh, yeah, fair question. I think coming into this, I saw less of the uh, satirical vibe that um, that you all, or most of you rather, have been touching on. This was, I don't know, it wasn't necessarily a tough movie to get through um, by any means, but movies that are this that portray this sort of brand of, of hatefulness do come off a certain way. And, you know, I, I try to wrestle with those in some way. Um, I, the, the satirical parts didn't really land for me, but having them brought up here, you know, I am already starting to kind of reconstruct that image in my head. Um, I'm not necessarily con- you know, I can definitely, I think, see what the, what this movie was, was doing, what Friedkin was trying to do, um, whether or not those bits land for me as well as they did for others you know i'm I, I feel like i'm still kind of working through that and will over the course of this discussion um but i'm i'm seeing it more than i did uh before i i guess is my very surface level response to that uh i would just like to say too that like real quick it's it's an interesting binary to set up but i i feel a little bit like connotatively satire doesn't quite capture what I'm getting at because satire almost implies a sort of levity and like humor, right? Like when we think about a satire in the like Starship Trooper sense, that's a movie that's having fun. This movie is not having fun. This movie is fucking angry, right? Like I think that this is, this is hateful in the truest sense, um, which is why satire is like an awkward definition. And, and it kind of like undoes that, that sincerity, um, irony binary as well right because it is a sincere movie it's just a sincerely fucking hateful movie and it's using the um the dressings and tropes of a buddy cop and la movies to get at this really angry alternative point so i guess maybe you could call it a deconstruction instead just sort of as a like a point of definition but i overuse the term deconstruction as well. So I kind of wanted to avoid that, but that's how it feels to me. And so that's why it like, like the whole satire versus sincerity thing, it, it kind of, it does both, right? Because it is satirical in that it really fucking hates Reagan and it really fucking hates like the return to traditional American values that, uh, that the eighties was wrestling with, but it's like very sincere in what it's attempting to do rather than being sort of skewed, you know? Uh, I just wanted to jump in because one uh, one sort of thing that came up uh, to me when you were talking about the sincerity versus the hatefulness versus the satire was just kind of like, I mean, Poe's law that, you know, as you approach, you know, extreme viewpoints, you can't tell the difference between sincerity and parody of those viewpoints. I guess like to me, it 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 it, it almost has to be like parody because I mean, like everybody's name is Richard in this movie. The main character gets his ass kicked by John Turturro. There's a character named Max Waxman. Like, like I, I don't know how, like, <laughs> this movie was put together, like, not with some sort of funny deconstruction. Absolutely. It's this cop, buddy cop genre in, in mind. Yeah, I, it, it's like an interesting thing where I think that satire in general, in, in, Satire and humor and parody, I don't think get enough attention as uh, like techniques, like filmmaking techniques, I, I agree. literary techniques. Yeah, it's it's a. Uh, uh, I'm kind of like weirdly split on this because the a lot of the movement towards this kind of sincere, uh, empathetic uh, literature and media and whatnot uh, was driven very much by David Foster Wallace and and people 
reading his books and interested in him. He was somebody who constantly pushed that. And he has a bunch of quotes about irony being like kind of a, a nihilistic uh, worldview. Um, at the same time, he has a, a very good uh, essay about humor and Kafka and just how funny Kafka is and how that humor is like underappreciated and like helps drive forth the the themes of his works. And I think that's something here where like, this film is a satire, it is a parody, but it is distinctly not really funny. I mean, there's moments, I think that some of the violence is like so shockingly in your face that you kind of can't help but laugh, or maybe maybe that's just me. Um, but it, it feels like this movie is using satire more as like an attack upon these characters than it is like yeah. driving towards a laugh, if that makes sense. I think it kind of does for me. I What I'm hearing is that you see this movie using satire as a tool and less as a genre, right? Less as like an overall mission statement and more like a specific way to get to the point of the thing, right? Like for me, for me that was revealed in the chase scene when it's literally like exactly like a video game chase scene where guys just start appearing on the bridge above him and in the river below him and on either side of him in cars. And that's, that's (laughs) a moment that I was like, okay, this is, this has gone beyond like a uh... a point of, we straight up never learned who those guys are, by the way. Uh, I mean, not individually, yeah. but it is like it is. That's the cops, right? Because they have burned their own undercover agent. Ling was right. actually was actually I forget his code name, but yeah, um, yeah, and like that. That to me was a moment where where like that that dichotomy, which I'm still I see Harry's point and I see Aaron your point, but to me it still does come down to like sort of a binary, and maybe we can work through that. Maybe it's just where my mind's at but that's where that started to like clash most for me is uh clearly this is a character this is not like a real person clearly it's a character that they're building but it is against such a bizarrely like split world between like a a highly dramatic mission that he's on and the absurd things that he comes upon that like that moment was the microcosm of i think what you're trying to say there aaron for me yeah i i Real quick, I do want to very briefly play a little bit of devil's advocate to what I'm saying and that I don't want to be ahistorical because this movie came out in 85 and it is, I think to view this as a reaction to like buddy cop films is maybe a little incorrect. Certainly there were films that you could categorize as as buddy cop films and the 1970s was full of uh, police procedurals and and films and whatnot. Um, Freakin' made one in 1971. Yeah, but 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 when I think of like buddy cop films, I think that Lethal Weapon in '87, two years later than this, yeah. really kind of kicked a lot of that off. So I, I don't want to say like this is Friedkin taking a look at a movie that hadn't came out yet and like satirizing it specifically. Right, right. Um, this, right. It feels like a culmination of a bunch of his uh, criticisms and kind of. Uh, uh, issues with modern american society and specifically uh LA. kind of the yeah in in the you know we haven't talked about this yet but these are secret service agents they're not even the police right right it's like ludicrous the yeah. secret service yeah, well, was, i don't really it, understand the, the structure then of the whole agency because he was passing himself off as like basically a customs agent fbi agent and yeah. special detective all at once depending uh, in on his situation. own words i can do whatever i want <laughs> Yes. Uh, it's not yeah. inaccurate. The Secret Service, technically, they protect the president and do shit like that. Uh, they were established uh, in the 1800s and still to this day, uh, a large part of what they do is uh, protect, protect the, and I'm getting the quote wrong, but protect like the financial security of the United States. They were originally created to uh, take down counterfeiters back in the 1800s when that was a big fucking deal because 
technology wasn't there's people printing money fuck what are we gonna do if you print four nickels you throw the whole economy off uh balance um so that's what they're created for and technically they still do that um that is something that friedkin was thinking about there's a quote uh, from wikipedia that's referencing one of the kind of special editions on the the dvd uh like a feature at um where he says that like the idea of a secret service agent outside of dc was such like a weird thought to him that it inspired so much of this movie. Like why the fuck are there secret service agents outside of DC? Um, why do they have helps. just like crazy extra judicial powers all over the country yeah. and they can just move into cop, uh, like local jurisdictions and just be like, Hey, we take over this case now and, uh, we have unlimited resources to do whatever we want. And it's like, Hey, there's yeah. probably a movie to be made about that. I wanted to point out the his, a historical nature of slight of that argument. And yeah, for sure. That's a really good point. Um, it's yeah. like, it's, it's too reductive too. Right. Because like you said, this is like, this is like a deep criticism and satire of like a bunch of different things. Um, I was going to transition. We may, maybe can uh, keep talking about this, but like, it's also like, extremely a specific anti-LA movie and in a lot of ways an anti-Hollywood movie and I think a lot of that is found in in both the main character and in Rick Masters specifically um and the the movie does some really great things with uh um with that there's this really funny thing that you said um Aaron where the the violence is really in your face. That's something I kept noticing is that the violence in this movie is literally also in their faces in that facial destruction is like a deeply recurring motif in this movie. Everyone gets their faces blown off and Rick masters burns paintings of faces. Like specifically, that's a thing he does to establish his characterization. The main character spoilers gets his face blown off basically by a shotgun. His partner died almost exactly the same way as he did. There are a bunch of other people that get their faces shot off. It's like, like, like facial destruction specifically is like a point of this movie. And I think that that really ties into LA and like identity performance and construction in some really fun ways. And it's really wild and interesting to see the intersection of criticisms of like postmodern slash modern um, identity as performance and as sort of like post media structured performance as as in like Rick Masters and uh, Chance, Richard Chance are both playing like mediated versions of themselves. Like Richard Chance is playing a character he's seen on TV, right? Like these people are obsessed with versions of themselves that they want to be. He's literally playing his mentor who ostensibly did the same thing. Um, And that's a really interesting way into uh, criticizing like the police and uh, the Secret Service and America in general is being about like like performance and about what is this performance and what is it doing and who is it, like who does it end up affecting and I found that really fascinating and I think that that's like the other half of this movie right if it's half a criticism of like um, basically American fascism in the form of uh, structured powers it's also a criticism of like this sort of like deep cultural mediated voyeurism and what that affects and how that contributes to american fascism in my opinion and so i'd love to talk about uh both of those things i guess uh definitely i agree with that breakdown uh, a whole bunch i think the only other support i would offer up is um you know what else we see from rick masters um especially in in, I I guess I focused on it more in the latter half of the movie, but um, Rick Masters is uh, his house, his environment, the place. They're they're full of mirrors. He's always 
looking at himself, there's this almost increasing focus on his own, I guess, perception of himself and maybe how others see him as well. Um, and he also films himself having sex and he's watching, uh, I, I believe he's watching himself having sex as he's performing. So I think uh, to your point, Harry, there's probably, you know, something a lot deeper there. He's like uh, the American Psycho if the American Psycho went to art school instead of business school. Ooh. Yeah, I'll take wow. that. Uh, the other thing, Harry, that you brought up, and uh, I think we, we mentioned this at the beginning, um, uh, as far as, you know, like imagery and self-actualization, uh, I thought it was, you know, sort of notable. It's it, it's pretty obvious, but like it, I guess it did it for me. At the end of the movie, uh, John Vukovic, uh, his character, comes into the movie as this very sort of oh, by yeah. the book. Yeah, by the book character. And uh, especially like shout out to the wardrobe in this movie, because I thought about it all the time. <laughs> um, and uh, leather jackets and, like, and aviators, baby. Yeah. And tucked in uh, football jerseys with scarves and cowboy yeah. boots and the whole Yikes. thing. Anyway, uh, Vukovic's character comes in and he's a very like by the book, you know, my my cop or my, my dad was a cop. My brother's a cop. Which uh, that's a very my, interesting I, line. I'm so glad you brought that up because he's also performing, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and he's a very by the book guy, very like sticks to his morals. But at the very end of the movie, after he's sort of gone through this entire whirlwind of circumstances alongside uh, uh, Richard Chance, you see him approach uh, the informant, uh, Bianca, in basically like a Richard Chance costume uh, saying like <laughs> yes, do whatever he was going to do to get what he would have done done living he, and dying in LA. He's literally cosplaying as his old former partner. It's wild. He like hasn't dressed at all like this. He's acting completely different. Um, I wanted to talk to Aaron a little bit about that scene because I feel like that really makes his perception of the whole movie sing is this final scene. But yeah, we should talk about that. Uh, that final scene is like absolutely heartbreaking to me. And like one of the most like dark endings I've maybe ever seen in a movie because we get flashbacks literally to like the informant um, who is also like, like kind of uh, Bianca who is like kind of Richard Chance's paramour, except that he treated her like shit for almost no reason, uh, which that's something interesting to talk about too. But she has these like trauma flashbacks to being mistreated by chance and her relationship with chance as she's looking at um, at uh, John Vukovic. And he literally, I think his last line in the movie is, you work for me now. And then she sees these flashbacks and it's like, it's all going to happen again, right? Like Vukovic has literally assumed the role that his former partner had assumed, which that partner was himself assuming another role. It's like fucking all about Eve, but with cops, right? It's like, these people are just going to keep filling these roles and who is going to suffer. It's the people on the highway that, uh, Richard chances is, is speeding down the wrong side of, well, he has fucking visions of himself base jumping instead of the people he's killing and the lives he's ruining. He's thinking about base jumping and basically whistling to himself. Right. It's so good, man. Like it, the movie does such a good job of establishing just like what an unbelievable prick, uh, 
Richard Chance is and how terrible it is that John Vukovic essentially becomes mini Chance at the end of this movie. Yeah, Richard Chance is essentially just dragging every single person he comes in contact with into just this giant shit swamp and he is shit at every single... But I, I think that it's not just his fault. Like, one thing that's, like, very notable oh, right. is that, like, there's a bunch of people that, like, reprimand him uh, and, like, say, like, hey, you're you're going a little crazy here, man. Like, I think you need to tone it down. Like, you're going to any ends in order to get back at the guy who killed your partner. Um, but then they just end up supporting him anyway. Like John, it's, John like a, it's like a wink and a nod almost at a certain point. Yeah. It's like, Hey, you're, you're really going renegade there. Hot shot. It's like, yeah, he's going to love to hear that dog. Like you're just yeah. encouraging him and they know it. Anybody who is pissed off at him in the movie, nevertheless turns around like later in the scene to say like, all right, look, we'll uh, we'll we'll let the prisoner go so you can set up this robbery. Uh, you better you better not you better not let him go into the wild. And then guess what ends up happening, right? And then it just keeps spiraling. Um, it seems like I mean Richard Chance is obviously the central asshole of this movie, but everybody else is kind of an enabler in a weird way. You know what it made me think of, Aaron, was uh, watching Falling Down a little bit. Like, yeah, are there people? Are there people on this earth who've seen this movie and they're like, man, it gets really hard to empathize with Richard Chance as we go on through the movie. And that person you know, should be like, you should, you should be put in jail, like, like medieval jail, the kind that are spelled like G-A-O-L, like those kinds like of jail. Gale, like yeah, G- like yeah. Gale, exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, the, 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 this is reminding me of a piece that I read. It's on Brightwell Dark Room. It's a piece called Life Authentic by Brian Brems uh, from, I guess I don't see, issue 73, whatever. We'll leave this link to the, in the show notes. Um, per, pursuant to this section of this character we're talking about, uh, the quote, even, sorry, they're talking about Chance, even his stated desire to avenge the death of his partner seems like subterfuge. He is attracted to pursuing a, such a dangerous criminal because he senses the possibility of self-destruction. Chance yes. is a maniac. Pretending to be an agent of law and order, he is false, but living true to the only way he knows for as long as he can. Yeah, that that's all, a great point. That is a great point. And it kind of like sums up a lot of, I guess, my feelings that I wasn't really smart enough to give words to while watching the movie. Um, but Aaron, I'm going to let you air one last thought before I lead us into a question that I think is going to spark some good discussion, maybe hopefully. Sure. Uh, I posted the, this in the Discord, but you, you brought up people who misread this movie. Uh, I got a shout out to my man, movie historian yeah. Leonard Malton. Uh, he, there's, a, there's a Wikipedia quote in like the reception section of uh, the page for this movie. And it says, uh, Leonard Malton seemed to agree with uh, another critic, giving To Live and Die in L.A. 1.5 stars out of a possible four. Try to imagine Miami Vice on the West Coast. Here you have it. The picture is so gritty that it's hard to root for anybody, since the good guys are as foul-mouthed, greedy, and sadistic as the bad guys. And I would just like to say that Leonard Malton is still alive, and I would very much like to beat his ass. Uh, I would like to beat him <laughs> in a public location. We can duel it out. I, fe- I feel confident that I could take him, I think. I think you could. That's all. Um, He's a writer. Of course you could take him. Wow. I guess you were allowed to say that. Uh, sorry, Jason. Real quick before you make your transition, we should talk about how like the death drive that um, that Richard Chance has uh, is sort of like not only enabled, but it was cultivated by his institutional privilege, right? Like, I don't think Richard Chance really lives in a world of consequences. I think that the fact that he's a cop makes him able to do things like he does without having to face the consequences of his own actions. Instead, everybody else pays for them. And so he lives in this like 
fantasy world where he can do whatever he wants. He can drive down the wrong side of the road. He can release prisoners from federal custody and, and shoot his gun however he wants without actually having to face any consequences. And so he is driven to go to greater and greater lengths to satisfy his like death drive. That's also what unites him with Rick Masters and where a lot of the homoerotic tension in this movie comes from, right? Is that they are in some ways like psychopathic soulmates um, in that in that they're both pursuing like greater and greater like death drive driven thrills because they don't have to face real consequences or it seems like they don't, uh, if that makes sense. And so um, sort of pursuant to Aaron's point earlier, right? It's not just about Richard Chance. Richard Chance is sort of the Frankenstein's monster of a world where authoritarian um, agents are given complete um freedom to do whatever they want and not have to face any of the institutional consequences of their actions. Gotcha. Uh, this is just, this isn't the question I was going to lead to, but what you were saying, Harry reminds me or makes me think Cody, you mentioned in, at the top, um, this is open, but I'm using Cody's uh, references as foothold for it. But uh, you mentioned that, I guess the only, one of the only people, one of the only characters that the script really worked for, for you, and for, apologies if I'm putting words in your mouth, uh, was Rick Masters. Um, and in the way that Rick and Chance are built using the same tools like Harry just mentioned, you know, that sort of drive for self-erasure, self-destruction, uh, et cetera, uh, and like the erasure of their, of their very identities sort of thing, constantly destroying, like, one of them gets his face blown off, the other gets immolated, just like the painting of his own face earlier. The symbology is pretty open, Ooh. pretty clear. Uh, but well, I'm not saying anything anybody already didn't say, but I'm wondering why the script then, if they're built using those same tools, if we can agree on that, why the script you felt worked maybe better for Rick as a character than it did for chance, or is that even a question? Uh, I think it is. Um, I think our discussion up to this point has helped fill in some of those gaps for me in that, uh, it all you know, bringing back the binary just for the purposes of, of answering this, it comes back to how each side um, has has or hasn't self-actualized, um, up, or at least that's kind of how I'm choosing to paint, like as far as how those translate to performance. I don't know if it was necessarily the the screenplay that didn't work as far as like connecting that to these characters. Um, to me, it felt more like what these uh, these performances were evoking. But, you know, if I guess entertaining this, reading it as, um, you know, Rick Masters uh, is the more actualized person. He's the more actualized totally. character. Um, and like that, you know, if, we're, if we say that, you know, the fact that he is more his his uh, his persona um, is more put together, it's more actualized than the other side. And, and you know, that's visible through his performance. And, you know, whether or not the performances of William Peterson as Richard Chance and John Panko as John Vukovic, whether or not those worked for you, I guess what I'm choosing to to read, um, maybe erroneously, but maybe not, is that they, those parts didn't quite sing as much for me be, because of, I guess, the lack of, of actual actualization the the structural structural shittiness of the the police force and the types of lines and threads that they are pursuing uh as characters i i think that's that as an idea is making more sense to me now i don't know if that's necessarily what what you guys were going for but that's what i think is working for me 
Uh, we should talk about Rick Masters because he's fucking fascinating in this movie. First of all, Willem Dafoe is such a strange dude, especially in this movie, because he is one pretty fuck ugly, right? I think we could agree he's relatively fuck ugly. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, I mean, I, he's yeah. maybe like like a top ten hottest performance in any movie in this movie he's so yes. fucking hot in this movie it doesn't make any goddamn sense he has a weird skinny ass like bony body his face is strangely structured and he's a complete smoke show in this movie it, it's wild um, he, he really he really does tear up the frame anytime that he's there like that scene I, when he I, turns I, around and you see his face in profile it's fucking wild or or even or even like the opening excuse me not opening but one of the first shots we get of him where he is setting fire to his own painting and this pe- camera just slowly pans up and he gives that total like blue steel look yeah it's fucking crazy and how perfect is that for rick masters that yeah of course this dude would be the hottest dude who ever lived his last name is masters right <laughs> and like his He's a counterfeiter. And like, if we think about like money and the status of money and the American dream that this movie is tying together, this is a guy who, like uh, Chance himself, thinks that his status and his role performance puts him above the grind, above the sort of like um, the game that everyone else is playing. He's a dude who thinks he's on a different level, who thinks everybody else is beneath him. It's interesting that this movie, like it repeatedly points out that Chance is not um, is not who he thinks it is. It also demonstrates that Masters isn't right. Masters gets his ass kicked almost as much as Chance does. Uh, Masters is sort of a an artist in the same way that uh, Chance is a cop, which is to say, eh, not really. Uh, but he certainly thinks of himself that way. Like like his love of the arts and of art history and uh, performance art is all part and parcel to his persona as this person who has sort of literally mastered LA and mastered what LA is supposed to be all about. And his vision of that is this crime life that he leads. Um, Aaron, you brought up his motorbike, her Island. That's a really interesting comparison because these characters in some ways are trying to do the same things those characters were, which is like self erase by becoming like the most pure distilled moment like feeling versions of themselves right like i think that this movie is populated by characters who want to live in a movie just like that movie is populated by characters who want to be erased into sort of an idea or into sort of a time and place like the 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 main character in his motorbike wants to be his motorbike and she wants to be her island and then later his motorbike and these characters want to be a counterfeiter and a cop right they don't want to be themselves and i think that's where some of the self-erasing uh metaphors come from is that these are people who are trying to destroy the weak versions of themselves and they want to use everyone else around them to do that and in the meantime deny everyone else the opportunity because that's how it works Definitely. Um, Harry, you touched on it a little bit. Uh, but yeah, I was fascinated by this ideology that um, the movie puts forth um, with regards to who Rick Masters is. Um, during that that conversation with Jeff, um, uh, his, I, I guess, sort of associate or, you know, somebody who he works with sometimes when the need calls for it. Um, the idea coming from Jeff of like, hey, like, what's it to you? You could just snap your fingers and print more money if you wanted to. Um, and then we think back to one of the, the, our, I guess, introductory sequence to Rick Masters, where it's showing the full, um, process of creating and printing money. Um, obviously the, the, 
the first shot of him where he's burning a, a painting, like he's, he's a counterfeiter to most everybody, even those he, he works with um, people like Jeff, but he, he's an artist. He views himself as an artist. What he's doing is art. And it's the, the fact that he finds it uh, rightfully insulting to sort of, I, I guess, think and, and view of his process of counterfeiting in that way was so fascinating and engrossing to me. Um, and like that methodology and ideology that, that we see with his character is, I mean, I, I didn't want to leave it and I got super bummed out um, in, what was it? An hour nine to an hour 33 is about when um, like the car chase and the, the tracking down of who ended up being, what was it like a, a CIA or a FBI and right. agent or whatever. We, we go 24 minutes without Willem Dafoe. And I was super frustrated. <laughs> you feel, every, you feel every minute, right? It's a you steal, feel every like, ding dong second. Yeah. He steals the show, man. And it's like, it's perfect that he does. Right. Because in a lot of ways, he represents the most actualized sort of um, aspirational version of what Richard Chance and John Vukovic are trying to become, right? Like, this this is a guy who who is sort of the master of L.A., almost. And I think that the art is a really great metaphor for that, uh, that you said, Cody, and maybe why the character made more sense to you. Because, like, maybe, like, Richard Chance's art is his being a shitty, terrible cop. But, like... There, there's something about uh, Rick's commitment to his art that makes his character make more sense in that way and almost makes him a more compelling or less sort of hypocritical character, even though, as it points out, as this movie points out, it's actually what you use your sort of performance for that matters, which is why he's still a literal counterfeit, because what he's trying to do with his art is not actually like creative. It's very destructive and self-destroying and everyone else destroying. Yeah, I think the difference there is, or a, a difference to keep in mind is, is the fact that uh, Rick's art, if we're like framing this again through art and performance, Rick's art is at least productive in the ways that chances are all like constantly destructive, you know, like he is, and maybe this is a baby faced way to look at it, but Rick is at least like he's creating physical pieces of art that can like be seen by other people. He is uh, creating money that is going into various communities around, I mean, for, to whatever end uh, that, or that is funding, you know, whatever, I guess, you know, arms races or drug deals that go on in LA and around the world. But chance is literally just there to chase people through airports and shoot people in the face. And, you know, uh, and be chased by by the police it's it's like not a noble uh empathetic or like actualized pursuit right i think the difference is maybe that rick masters acknowledges it right our establishing characterization of rick masters is that he has painted a portrait of somebody he loves and then he burns it and for him the art isn't the construction of the painting it's the destruction of the painting similarly i think that the art of his counterfeiting isn't the creation of the counterfeiting at all it's what that counterfeiting affects namely the destruction and sort of subversion of la with him as the um the ringleader of it he's uh he relishes in that destruction more than he relishes in even the money it makes him because Ah. that destruction is what gives him his sense of self and purpose whereas like richard chance is exactly the same way which is why they're in love with each other but richard chance doesn't think that way because he's been told that he's a good guy by the institution (laughs) So it's not so much as it was in my view to be 
I guess, despite the end goals or the end product of his art, of, of Rick's production, it is because of those things that he finds himself a realized, actualized, or more actualized, we're talking about a scale here, person than Chance. Interesting. I think so. Um, I wanted to ask a question about, we sort of glossed over it, but in the second act of this movie, um, the the guy that um, Chance ends up robbing so that he can finance going after Rick Masters, which is as bad as it sounds, turns out to himself be uh, a Secret Service agent, which prompted Aaron to say, this movie is so good while we were watching it. I really loved that comment, and I think that that's such a funny moment, is that literally the the FBI and the Secret Service are tripping over one another with these ridiculous plots, and so I kind of wanted to get Aaron's take on um, on that moment and how it sort of fits into his reading. Well, I think it it's even better. Jason pointed this out earlier. I guess I had not considered this, but it's even better that if if you Think about it, and you recognize the very subtle joke there, which is that the people that were shooting at our main characters must have been the feds as well. Yeah. So this whole chase sequence, disrupting traffic, cars flipping in the air, people dying, windows being blown open, is is solely a bunch of feds <laughs> in Los Angeles just, like, shooting at each other for literally no reason because they're both completely incompetent. Uh, it's really It's really funny. It, it's a comedy, folks. Uh, Seth, I want to know, like, there is an A plot here, right? There is a written story. But among all of these other considerations, by the end of the movie, uh, you had this approximately the same viewing experience I did. And I want to know what, like, what did that, what did all these, what all these uh, lenses through which to look at and all these, like, different layers and considerations to make around these characters, what does that do for you in terms of the A plot? Does it, like, eliminate the base stakes of the movie? Does it, uh, like... Does it eschew any elements of like drama or driving action to know that these things are like maybe that these things are present in the movie? Is it or does it like just turn the story into a diorama you're you're just viewing as a curio? Yeah, I I think it, you know, I think it's a it, it's what makes it good satire um, is that, you know, if you just look at the sort of base elements like you you probably could see somebody watch this movie and think like oh like it's it's a shame that richard chance died but you know vukovic is is following in his stead the good guys win rick masters has been killed justice has been served kind of thing uh and you know you're losing all of the the the, the subtext the sort of all, all, all the things we've been talking about, about self-actualization, destruction, you know, lack of consequences from, you know, these institutional uh, sort of uh, bodies throughout the movie. Um, I, I, I do know that while I was watching it, uh, it's kind of what was pointed out that there are a lot of points. I think I pointed it out to you when uh, Richard Chance is in that lawyer's office trying to get uh, Carl Cody released there's a point where he just kind of like the, the lawyer tells him like, I'm not going to do this for you. And Richard Chance just kind of scoffs and gives up and is walking out. And then literally sort of unprompted, I get, or for a reason I can't understand the lawyer's just like, eh, actually like, let me look at it again. Kind of thing. And then it's just like, Oh wait, okay. No, the, the plot can continue. Like the story that has been being told is going to be enabled. And like, I don't know. It, it was one of those things where I was, it, 
it just kept constantly surprising me that like with the beginning of the movie being all over the place and then the middle of the movie, like sort of falling into a traditional story structure and then the end of the movie sort of giving you a traditional, you know, the, the bad guy air quotes I'm doing while I say this is, is vanquished. Uh, there's all these parts in between that just kind of like allow that specific narrative to unfold. Uh, yeah, Seth, you said something really good, which is that like, if you didn't look too closely at this movie, you could totally read it straight. Like the satire of this movie is almost all in the direction. And I don't want to not give proper credit to, um, the co-screenwriter who also wrote the book, um, Jared, our, uh, Gerald, uh, Mm, Pitovich, I think. Uh, but like, you could totally see, I, I mentioned it before and I don't mean to drag him through the mud, but like John Woo could make a straight up version of this movie that was just heroic and just like, like wild, a fun action movie. That's almost what face off is <laughs> like th- this movie is like, like almost a piss take on face off. Um, but like, it's so interesting that, that, with a little bit of difference in the way that these scenes were staged in the way that they work, this could be a straight up action movie. And that almost makes the satire sing way better, right? Is the fact that it's like they chose to make it this way. Um, We should also talk about how um, the die part of to live and die in LA is that uh, both Richard chance and Rick masters die extremely ignobly. Um, Richard or Rick masters has a very, climactic death right where he burns alive like one of his paintings and his face is destroyed in the fire um richard chance in like one of the best movie twists i've seen in a long time dies extremely ignobly in a locker room when a like one of rick masters um lackeys pulls a shotgun out and they exchange fire and both die richard chance doesn't get a final line he doesn't get anything we see him go up in like a bloody paste for a second and then he's on the ground and his face is gone and that's it for him. And that was also very interesting and important to me is that like to live in LA is to affect this sort of like role play. Right. And then to die in LA is to finish your role in the way that it is meant to be. Right. It's like almost, well, Richard chance got what he wanted. He was exactly the same as his mentor was who also died by having his face blown off. (laughs) I I gotta mention it on the side here. Uh, apparently, there was an alternate ending, ending uh, filmed to this movie because, as as requested by the studio um, that released it, uh, in which, and it's available on YouTube, but in which um, Vukovic or sorry, uh, Chance survives. He's shot in the of belly course. instead of the face. Uh, and Vukovic and uh, and Chase man or God damn it, Chance uh, managed to capture Masters. He's killed in the same way. And they're both transferred to uh, another station in Alaska. And the movie just just sort of resolves on that note, which feels like like rightfully like a fucking bizarre way to end this movie from any perspective. Like, again, what kind of person is watching this movie and thinking this is totally a straight buddy cop movie? Uh, that version would have gotten three it. and a half stars from uh, Aaron's favorite film historian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just a, a classic tale of good and evil in uh, shady Los Angeles. Uh, I, I just love how the movie, like, it doesn't need to build these real people. In fact, like, these absolutely uh, over-exaggerated, bizarre characters are the only way that it can be, like, create vessels for the kind of thing it wants to do and the kind of story it wants to tell. Um, 
I love I love what you just said there because I I'm terrible uh, I'm insufferable I have to defend David Foster Wallace just a little bit um, where you said Jason that uh, it doesn't have to build real people I think like one of the big things that that David Foster Wallace's sort of approach to like hyper sincerity or like like post irony uh, etc is to make the sort of like postmodern point that like real people aren't real people anymore. Uh, and so I like movies a lot that do that sort of thing that point out that like, Hey, like in, in a world where we're all so saturated by, by media and by storytelling, like there is no such thing as the discrepancy between fact and fiction and between like media and reality, because they all bleed into one another because your personality is, is a composite of those things. Um, and I think that this movie is really interested in that, which is part of why it takes place in LA. Right. 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 Uh, I think we're ready to start pivoting unless I, I want to squeeze out any last thoughts from anybody uh, about what the movie is, does how you felt about it before we head into our final segment. Uh, the only other thing I have is to my knowledge, this is at least the second movie um, again that I know of where uh Willem Dafoe's character is alongside a character named Cody. Um, the other one being the life aquatic with Steve Zissou. Um, Let's go. There's a, there's a, there's a dog named Cody. Um, so shout outs to the dog named Cody in that movie. That was, that was the, exactly the kind of information that I was looking, hoping to squeeze out before we head in. And I believe he plays the same character in that movie, right? I think that, uh, Lars is about, he's almost exactly the same as Rick Masters. I think they're very similar in a lot of ways. Uh, yeah, that, that checks out. For a moment, I thought you meant John Turturro was also in Life Aquatic. And oh, if only. Dog. God, then that movie if would have only. nearly all of my favorite actors in it. <laughs> uh, okay, then I think, uh, Harry, are you ready to help me welcome in our final segment? I think so. I think we're headed into our final segment, which we like to call <gasps> Cody's Noties. Uh, stifling back the sharp inhales yet again. Um, as always, thank you for the warm welcome. Um, given that we haven't had a whole lot of Willem Dafoe uh, content on the pod historically, um, I feel like I couldn't let us off this episode without giving him his own special segment, which I have uh, heavy-handedly called Defriend or Dafoe. Um, I know that's a All joke right. All right. that has been right. made for I'm literally cheering. decades I'm on cheering. Twitter. Uh, I'm going nuts. Uh, so yeah, yeah. Hold on to your tweets. I know Defriend or Defoe has been in memes for a while. I know it's already a thing. But in any case, this premise, um, this we were sort of talking about a different uh, good versus evil uh, binary during our discussion today. Um, the sort of friend or defriend or defoe binary is a little tough to build around for this because by all accounts, Willem Dafoe seems to be a relative pleasure to work with. Um, obviously, the disclaimer to all of this is we are limited to the scope of public record, which is neither comprehensive nor necessarily 100% accurate. I am looking at you, IMDb trivia sections, where I do almost 100% of my research. Um, Get but just their ass. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm just saying, but just so everyone here and everyone listening is clear on our limitations, it's challenging to find situations where in this particular man, um, it could be called a foe in the traditional sense of that word, but we're going to try our best to identify some people, um, situations and ideas that, uh, that Willem Dafoe maybe clashed with in a different lighter sense. Um, and also everything put forth here is alleged. So Mr. Dafoe, if you're listening, um, by the grace of any gods, if you were listening to this, none of this is intended slander. Please don't view us as your Dafoe's. Um, also come on the pod. Also, yes, please. Lord Jesus, uh, come on the pod. With all of that said, hey, he played Jesus. 
that hey uh will not come into play during this rundown but yeah shout out to to willem dafoe is jesus um bless you uh with all that said i'm gonna run through a list of those uh, aforementioned people situations and ideas um that touch on various points of dafoe's career and what i ask of you fellas is to submit your impression is the relationship of dafoe to this thing that of a defriend or that of a dafoe um if uh, I personally think this exercise works better as something more collaborative, um, since most, if not all of us here, have some pretty impassioned views of the titular Defoe. Um, so maybe those discussions will be nice to hear in that sense. That being said, if you want to treat it more as an individual competition, I won't stop you. I guess personally, I'm still low-key reeling from the spooky guessing game, and I have some fatigue, but whatever y'all want to do is good with me. Uh, yes, I, I won champion individual competition. It's the only way that the market uh, thrives. And two, uh, the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. Nice. Perfect. All right. Well, um, I'm putting together a score sheet on, on my side. Oh, no. Um, well, uh, yeah, this is, um, the friend or the foe guessing game. Um, anyways, but biding some time. All right. If we're all ready to jump in, I will give our first uh prompt here um we're gonna start with a recent thing or at least uh recent for us i suppose um the film to live and die in la uh is this movie's relationship that of a defriend or that of a defoe and we'll go in alphabetical order by first name um so aaron uh what's your take on that uh defoe defoe uh harry i don't totally understand the categories all right. I think that will make it more, uh, I think that will make itself more apparent as we go. All you got to tell me is, is this movie's relationship with Willem Dafoe as a person oh, with Willem that Defoe. of a defriend or that of a Dafoe? Yeah. I'll go with Dafoe. Okay. Uh, Jason, sorry. I'm going with defriend. I have to balance this out. Yeah. Uh, all forward to balance. And Seth, uh, what you got? Defriend or Dafoe? I'm going to go Dafoe on this one. All Come right. On. The deck is stacked. Coyote Scotty, life out of balance. Uh, the correct answer, the objectively correct answer to this is uh, I would call this movie a defriend um, by Cody's Noties logic. Uh, William Friedkin, uh, or perhaps William Friendkin, uh, was apparently so impressed by Defoe's <laughs> range uh, that while filming, uh, he went back to adjust the script in order to better match the character of Masters with Willem Defoe, uh, the person and the artist. Oh, that's um, fascinating. Yeah, uh, Defoe also spent extra time getting into his character. Um, the real artist who created Masters' paintings, Rainer Fetting, uh, is a German artist who sold a lot of paintings in Europe and New York. He reportedly evoked uh, kind of what Rick Masters should have been doing as a character. Um, and so Willem Defoe spent uh, extra time watching him paint because he's a professional, goddammit. Um, so yeah, uh, point for Jason uh, for that round uh, for correctly identifying the objective relationship as that of a defriend. Um, moving along to our second one. We have smoking weed on the set of the film Platoon. Was the use of marijuana a defriendly act or the act of a defoe? Um, Aaron, you're up first. Uh, any sort of drug use is a uh, immoral and illegal act, and uh, uh, Willem Defoe should be uh, put down like the dog he is. I'm going to say defoe. All right, Terry. No way, man. 420, smoke weed every day. Uh, I'm going to call this a debud. <laughs> which is a, a different oh, boy. Right, get it? <laughs> Very good. Uh, Jason, uh, do you have anything to top that or just your answer? I don't have, I, the stems and the seeds, that is to say Defoe. 
<laughs> All right, and Seth. Man, uh, you guys really. <laughs> really stole the all of the weed-based jokes I could possibly make. Uh, so I'm just going to go with Defriend. Defriend. Uh, Seth is green with envy following that rundown. Um, smoke responsibly, friends, or risk the grass becoming your defoe. What um, the fuck? Ow! This is... There, there's a scene in Platoon where uh, it's been a while since I've seen Platoon. Shoutouts to Platoon. Uh, where Defoe's character, uh, Sergeant and I, Elias or Elias, it's been a long time, and his half of uh, the platoon, they're smoking marijuana. Apparently, the actors actually did smoke, and unfortunately for them, and this was reported by Mr. Defoe himself, by the time the stage was set and they actually began to film, everyone had come off their high and felt like absolute shit. So, Defoe. Smoke responsibly, again. Willem Defoe reportedly called it, quote, skunk weed, and said that the high was... Quote, not mellow at all, unquote. <laughs> it's skunkweed, Spider-Man. Um, I would not have smoked the devil's lettuce. The Green Goblin is a great name for a strain of weed. That's, yeah, hey, uh, we'll see how uh, this exercise uh, evolves. Um, anyway, with our third subject, we'll be brushing shoulders with a previous episode, Inside Man, uh, by briefly highlighting its director, Spike Lee. Honestly, we may have already covered this on that episode, but just so we're on the same page now, is Spike Lee a defriend or a defoe? Uh, starting with Aaron. Uh, defriend, and if you say otherwise, you are racist. Good to know. Harry? Uh, yeah, I think we talked about this on the episode, but he fucking loves Willem Dafoe, I think. So I'm going to go with Defriend. As he, sh- as he should. Hell yeah. Kings loving Jason. kings. <laughs> kings uh, loving si- kings. Sign of racial unity and harmony. Uh, Defriend. All right, and Seth? Uh, I, I have to go with Defriend here. Uh, yeah, Spike Lee is a defriend. Uh, you know it. Um, glad we're all united on that front. Oh, yeah. According to Spike Lee, and again, apologies uh, to any listeners who uh, actually listened to our episodes and picked up Inside Man. Maybe we talked about that. That's this, nobody. Um, uh, my memory is mush. Yeah, I'm apologizing to uh, an empty chair. Um, but according to Spike Lee, he and Willem Dafoe met in a bathroom during the intermission of a stage performance of Julius Caesar, in which Denzel Washington had appeared. As they were standing side by side at the urinals, instead of having an overly awkward uh, or negative encounter, Mr. Lee said to him, we should work together. And Defoe replied, yeah, Spike, we should. And that was it. Uh, and at some point yeah, later Spike, on, we should. Oh, boy. Uh, at some point later on, um, Spike, as this IMDb user refers to him um, a little overly friendly, uh, sent him the script for Inside Man. And that was that. Now I have to ask, and I apologize, one, if this came up, and I apologize for being blue here, but uh, Willem Dafoe's um, <clears throat> de- de friend downstairs, if you will, is uh, reportedly legendary. And one has to wonder if Spike Lee got a glimpse of it, and if that maybe affected his decision to cast him in uh subsequent films uh what a beautiful transition to number four um (laughs) showing our hand a little bit our next subject is the film antichrist uh from the year 2009 (laughs) uh with specific regards to willem dafoe being allowed to perform as the most authentic version of himself is antichrist a defriend or a defoe aaron uh i believe the story behind this is that his if i correct me if i'm wrong but was his defriend or defoe And, well, uh, that would be Defoe because they had to use a prosthetic penis. I think. Uh, Harry. Yeah, DeHog was too big. So they had to get a, they had to get a fake one. So it's a Defoe. It's not fair. Free, free DeHog. Uh, did Jason? Defriend, no comment. Uh, now over to Seth. It sounded like he had to use it Defoe penis. So I'm going to say Defoe. (laughs) 
<laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, this this is a rather unique entry. Um, we've maybe talked a little bit too much about uh, Willem Dafoe off mic, uh, making Nodi sort of uh, redundant. But uh, yeah, Antichrist, uh, by all objective accounts, is a Dafoe. Um, hearing this from multiple places, but the story is that Willem Dafoe's penis needed to be edited out uh, of some scenes of the movie because it was decided that it was too large and unusual looking. Um, Imagine I that can only hope to you. Right, what, I can only Mr. Defoe put this as a yeah as a compliment, even though it does uh, kind of suck. I do have unusual looking. <laughs> <laughs> I do have um, shout out to um, neighbor podcast. Uh, how did this get made? I got a magnet from them because it came up on one of their episodes, and it's just a magnet on my fridge. Merchandise Willem Defoe's face with uh, the phrase um, confusingly large, I believe it is. My fridge is in the other room, but um, that holds a special place in my heart as I hope it does you boys. Anyways, uh, shout out to Willem Dafoe's penis. Uh, with number five, uh, we pivot ever so slightly to Dafoe's work in David Lynch's film, Wild at Heart, uh, which some of us here have seen. Um, I have not. Um, would y'all say that Dafoe's relationship with the crew of that movie is that of a defriend or of a Dafoe? Uh, Aaron first. Do I just give a one more? Uh, Defoe. Uh, I, last time you were getting into what my explanation was for number four, so I, I tried to uh, give you a, a hashtag Kurosawa cutoff. But I, um, I think just given the character in that movie, if it is anything other than Defoe, I am very confused. So I'll go Defoe. All right, you're going Defoe. Harry, what are you going with? No, I think I think a friend, and I think he and Laura Dern were best friends on the set. Okay. Uh, Jason? I have to believe. <laughs> Different. All right, and Seth. Uh, Cody, I'm with you. I haven't seen this movie, so I'm just going to err on the side of positivity and say Defriend. Very good. Um, I applaud that uh, enthusiasm, um, that earnestness. Uh, but I've got some bad news, fellas. Defoe was uh, indeed a Defoe. He was an absolute menace for one specific moment and almost certainly unintentionally all things considered uh there's evidently a scene in that movie where he visits lord Dern's character and takes a piss uh into a toilet apparently defoe had drunk a lot of water that day and legitimately really needed to to go he found <laughs> out later that the toilet was indeed not functional and therefore some poor member of the film's crew was responsible for cleaning it out he did so, the old Home Depot toilet trick where you're always like eh, what would happen when you're walking through Home Depot he just did that except on a film set which exactly. I've never thought about the fact that toilets on film sets may is not there, actually work. Is there is there a story there, Aaron? It sounds like there's a story there. You've never walked through a Home Depot and joked about using one of the toilets that are just like on. The uh, you, you, did, you, I, did, I you didn't talk about the, you didn't that. talk about you didn't talk about the feeling of joking about it. You talked about the feeling of of doing it. I would I would like to. I've never done it. I would like to do it. But I no, too I'm would like done. to pee in places I'm not allowed to pee in. It's great. It's a free. Yikes. What's okay. I'm do you think do that, that do you think that Defoe's uh depiss was also long and unusual in that instance? Sounds like it. It was it was like a fire hose. Long Man, that's like maybe one of the most uncomfortable scenes in history, and I'm like very upset to actually learn this information. The long and unusual, <laughs> just uh, like yeah. this segment. Uh I do have one more for us. Sorry, just to curb this a little bit. Um last but not least, we got the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. Um now we're talking Willem, De- Willem Defoe. Demand, not Willem Dafoe to Goblin. Uh, is this a different situation or a Defoe situation, Aaron, who is currently in the lead by one? Just all of the, like all of the movies are they? Uh, this is supposed to be a gimme. Uh, is <laughs> oh, what? Well, that's not a gimme. 
He is Defoe in the movie, but I assume he was the friend with the director. Uh, I'll go Defoe. Come on, man. Just okay. You're, to, you're going it, Defoe. I'm going Defoe. All right, Harry. It's different. I He he turned in what is objectively the greatest cinematic performance in history in that first movie. And I have to assume that Sam Raimi was over the moon about it. And he and Randy Savage and Tobey Maguire all became the best of difference. Uh, yeah. In this bit, I've got you for 15 minutes of playtime. Uh, Jason? Defriend. Anybody and... else who says that otherwise is a goddamn <sighs> cop. What the hell? And Seth. If you look up to the skies of uh, New York City, you'll see the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Fuck yeah, dude. Uh, yeah, obviously, obviously, ah, this working right, relationship well. was the friendly. Um, yes. There's, yes. Prob- there's probably a lot of insight about it out there. Um, just because Defoe getting cast as Norman Osborn is a choice that I feel like has only grown more interesting and more popular given the benefit of hindsight. Or maybe we just talk about it a lot in our insular social circle and I'm overreaching. Uh but some quick hits uh, for you while Defoe campaigned to do most of his own stunts and he reported and reportedly rather ended up doing 90 to 95% of his character stunts in the first Spider-Man movie. Uh, the Green Goblin costume was specifically tailored to fit his physique. It was originally a bulkier uh, thing, a bulkier costume, but was made slimmer as a way to become more agreeable to Defoe's kind of style of movement uh, and body type. Uh, Defoe originally wasn't going to return for the sequel, but he and Raimi worked out a way to write him in for a few brief scenes. And finally, and this has been, uh, this is resurfaced rather on Twitter at some point, probably in our group chat. Um, there's a hidden extra behind the scenes video on the film's DVD of Spider-Man 2, rather, wherein Willem Dafoe is on set and elming the Doc Ock suit and sort of giving his playful take for how the character should be played, overacting all the way. Um, everyone on set, including Alfred, uh, Alfred Molina, uh, the actual Dr. Otto Octavius, is in good spirits. And in that moment, at least, everyone is a different. What I took away from this segment is that our friend group talks about Willem Dafoe a shocking amount, I think. Also, a shockingly uh, large amount. And unusual. Um, Shoutouts to last Christmas when Cody got me a very large poster of the Green Goblin, which I <laughs> cherish. Uh, thank you so much, Cody. Yeah, no problem. You're welcome for the poster. Now, now Cody, uh, I, I know what you're going to say, right? Which is that I, I clearly did not win the game after that last round however will you tell me who did will you tell me who did will you tell me who did uh so my the scorecard i'm looking at right now um we got a couple of ties which i think willem dafoe would be amenable to we got aaron and jason tied for first with four harry and (laughs) seth tied for second with uh three now now here's the here's the thing you have not brought up the rule that i think if you look at your cody's notice rule book you will find which is that in the case of a tie you go by alphabetical first name Clearly understood, I think, by everybody here. Uh, Jason will probably agree to this, right? Uh, I'll, how know. about this? How about this? Um, to guarantee that we never get a resolution to this, I'll leave it to our listeners to tweet at us who actually won Defriend or Defoe. Um, okay. I'm looking forward to getting no responses. Um, but, you know, if you're a listener out there and you feel one way or another uh, about our co-champions, uh, Aaron Grossman and Jason Daphnis, send us a tweet uh, uh, or something, a DM if you don't feel like making it public. Let us know who won Defriend or Defoe. In fact, you could even sort of supply your own uh, special points if you wanted to sort of like tip the scale a little bit and, and maybe even vote for somebody who uh, who didn't necessarily came in first, but is maybe your uh, your favorite member of the podcast. You know, maybe sort of somebody you just particularly like, you want to yeah. see win. Yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, it's I mean, who will? Yeah. We would, what? Okay. Thank you so much, Cody, for keeping the ends of our episodes so damn entertaining. 
Is that and the a little bit too notes? long. Ah, <laughs> uh, and thank you very much, listeners. Well, it's like you get two podcasts for the price of one. Cody's Noties is a podcast within a podcast, may arguably a better podcast. So you're welcome, listeners. Arguably a better podcast. I mean, come on. Yikes. You're welcome, listeners, for listening to Try Love. And thank you very much, Seth, for being on our podcast again. Hope to have you back soon. Yeah, uh, always a pleasure. Thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, thank you very much for listening to Try Love. Uh, find us at Try Love Podcast on Twitter. Find the Trilon Cinema at Trilon Cinema. Go to trilon.org. Uh, they will be closing amid the uh, recent. Uh, rise in COVID-19 cases. So you can join the Trilon Club there. You can buy merchandise. I understand there are a few pieces of limited edition merchandise that are going to be tying up soon. Uh, so go to Trilon.org and find ways to support the Trilon while they're not able to actually show movies in person. Uh, my name is Jason Daphnis. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. I've been Cody Narvison. Um, I want to be friends with all y'all, but if you refuse to wear a mask uh, when you're out in the world, if you refuse to isolate, then you are almost certainly my Defoe. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Cody underscore BH. 40,000 years of evolution and we barely even tap the vastness of human potential. I'm Harry Mack and the number one Destan of Willem Defoe, and you can find me at Shiitake Harry. Uh, I'm Aaron. I saw each Spider-Man movie once in theaters, and I do not remember any quotes. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at RBPlease. The fuck you. Seth, give us the out. You know what? I'm something of a Willem Dafoe fan myself. Uh, you can find me uh, <laughs> on Twitter at SNZRM. A 21st century podcast? Yes, your taste is in your ass. <laughs> <laughs>